I couldn't emphasize enough how optimistic I, when you look at what you could do to improve the quality of your life, exercise ranks right at the top. It does so many things. If you wind back the clock, doctor, okay, you're getting older, slow down. It's the exact opposite. My name's Scott Trappy. I'm a professor at the Human Performance Laboratory at Ball State University, and I'm also the director of the facility. The lab got started in the mid-1960s by Dave Costell. It's still going. We have wonderful university support. It was part of the running boom taken off, and this was the first lab in the United States that actually did muscle biopsies. And so we've done a lot of the biospecimen collection in different populations over the years. And then I came here to work with Dave. So he was my advisor, mentor, now friend. We still swim. We swim together today. Dave was bringing back the runners he tested back in the late 60s and early 70s as a follow-up, like a 25-year follow-up. So that was my introduction into this. I was obviously interested in it from my own perspective of being a swimmer and what was going on. But these guys came in and they were about the age I am now, and we called it the Aging Runners Study. So I had a chance to interact with all of them, Andy Burfoot, Frank Shorter, all the, you know, top flight guys. Dave tested back in the day and he was, when he was retesting them and it was just a wonderful experience. And I got to know him and my nose is in the literature because I was helping write those papers and just fit into, we're still doing it. And we're, we're doing follow-up studies on people like them and others and just Along the lines, after we, we did that study, which was part of my doctoral work, we got involved with NASA and also got involved with aging research. And I was doing a lot with bringing older people into the lab and strength training them for three, four months. Mm. And we were seeing, in particular, we were dealing with a selective group of healthy, non-exercising octogenarians, and we trained them for three months, all supervised here in the lab. And we saw some interesting adaptations or lack of adaptation, actually. It was their fast fibers weren't responding the way we thought they would. And there's just for your listeners, I don't know what everybody knows, but most of us have two main fiber types in our muscles, a slow fiber that's good for posture and endurance and a fast fiber, it's quick explosive type activities. And as we age, the fast fibers tend to atrophy more rapidly and lose their explosive qualities. And these can potentially be problems for balance or protecting yourself sure. from a fall. And so the idea with that original octogenarian athlete study was, let's test some people that are in the same age bracket, but have been doing it their entire life with yeah. the idea that exercise would use these fibers and they would look healthier. And that was a unique collaboration with some friends of ours, Dr. Per Tash at the Karolinska Institute over in Stockholm, Sweden. And these skiers were actually up in northern Sweden and they had been at it their whole life. And they were, some of them were Olympic champions and regional champions and national champions, a whole group of them. And they were super agile. And we learned a ton from that and we've done, subsequently done a lot more with that. So that was just a little background why we got into sure. that because we were doing aging studies for several years, just looking at things. And then we wanted a, a real active comparator group. And we, at that point, we felt like they were out there, right? That was our feeling and they'd probably yeah. be willing to be tested. And just a funny story about the oxygenary. So we're, we're over in Sweden testing them. We got them set up in the clinic and we're, we're doing max tests on them. And the, the clinic we were, the setup we were using with Dr. Peritash and Tomas Gustavin, they're usually heart patients and different stuff that were in there, the, the 
nursing staff and stuff were doing them. So they were a little freaked out, like how far these older people were going. So they actually, <laughs> they actually stopped the first test. They're talking oh, wow. in Swedish. And I'm, I'm like, oh, hold on. What's going on? What's going on? So we recalibrated. We redid uh-huh. that. And then when these, the, the results, how long they were on the bike and the, their VO2 that they were producing, it was just like, well, we better double check to make sure this stuff's calibrated because these, <laughs> these, these, these are high data for yeah, yeah. this group. And so we, we had all that footing, we were getting under it. And then once everything got calibrated and things were calibrated, but once we got calibrated and the staff got cal- calibrated, I mean, it was just clear these were a special group of people when you looked at their overall physiology. Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers, the graph in the 2012 paper in terms of the cluster of lifelong exercisers versus healthy non-lifelong exercisers or wherever you want to characterize them, it's really startling in particular, and I like the way you did this, and I've seen it subsequently in some other things from the ACSM and elsewhere, but the notion of, I don't know what, what the right term is, but so an independence level of VO2 max as a collineator with respect to your minimum amount you meet and you need in terms of I don't know, excess horsepower to carry on in your daily life. And how many of the the healthy but non-active life folks were sort of like clustered just above that line, and whereas they're right no on, buffer. right, and they yeah they really refer to this as this frailty threshold. And that really came out of Jonathan Myers' work out of Stanford. They had this big database, and they were actually yeah. showing that VO two max was a stronger predictor of mortality and morbidity than say cardiovascular disease. Right, and, this, and so you needed you need to really for independent living, you're above seventeen point five. MLs per kg for a VO2 max. And like you're saying, the non-exercisers clustered right around that, whereas <laughs> yeah. the athletes had a huge reserve, right? right. In fact, if right. you look at the VO2 from these aging athletes, I think the mean was 36 MLs per kg. That's as good as a lot of college students walking around campuses these days. <laughs> it's, it's just phenomenal data. Right. But then when you, when, when you are forced with some type of challenge, right? A health challenge could be what it, whatever could come up that maybe you're, you're forced into some type of, maybe you got pneumonia, you're forced into bed or whatever. Sure. The people that are right around that line, oftentimes that's a game changer where they have to move from an independent lifestyle to a dependent lifestyle. Whereas when you got that buffer or that reserve, you can absorb that and bounce back. And a couple of those gears. T- no, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was going to say, I equated I sometimes gonna... with, with, with the idea of almost in a financial sense of a savings account, right? It's a buffer yes. from the unexpected. And it's interesting yes. that as soon as you put it in those terms with people, as particular people over 60, over 70, that I that this is a buffer against the unexpected and think of it like a savings account, suddenly something that made no sense to them, like, why why, why do I need to do this? I don't need, I don't need big muscles. I'm not going to run a marathon. No, no, it's a buffer against the unexpected. Yeah, it's life, health, insurance policy, sure, all these things. Sure. Now, obviously these skiers were genetically gifted. They Absolutely. had wonderful cardiovascular systems and stuff when they're younger. We didn't test them then, but you can extrapolate back to what it would take to do these things, which is just to segue a little bit. What's interesting then when we followed that up, we were doing people, you know, similar age, seventies, eighties, and, but these they were not champion athletes, right? So they didn't have these abilities to make a living off sport. Yeah. But they were just into it because they loved it. But when you look at their data now, they've been at it. It's pretty much the same as the champion athletes. So I think the champions have probably declined a little bit more. Their training habits aren't what they were when they were doing the really high volume. And even the non-champion, but consistent lifelong exercisers, roughly eight hours a week, which is only about 3% of your time, 
Yeah. That they had, they were in the mid thirties as well for their VO2, which is, and they've got that same savings account protection as the champion. So you didn't have, you don't have to be, the point is you don't have to be a champion athlete to have these benefits. Right. And you don't even have to be, I mean, one of the things that was striking to me about that Journal of Applied Physiology, it's Larkin Daly's paper in the Journal of Applied Physiology was the last couple of weeks ago, was that the subject, his grandfather, was only was 72 when he started, and he was not a lifelong exerciser. He actually smoked into his 40s, wasn't a particularly good athlete as a teenager. Now, again, this is not a recommended policy here, but the notion that he was so, and maybe he's a super responder, you have no idea, but the, the notion that he responded so well to that stimulus with respect to endurance training and, and an overlay of resistance training, it was just was startling to me, so... I think you're right. And you bring, you raise a great point and that is it's never too late to start. Yeah. Right. Even if you haven't led the greatest lifestyle or you've just been busy in life because life, there's just a lot of moving parts. The body remains and has the ability to adapt and change and respond to these six, uh, like an exercise stimulus, even even if you're 80 years old. Right. So it's never too late to start. Which is, re- which is really startling. I mean, again, you w- I wouldn't recommend it. You might not make it to 72 to start becoming your indoor rowing champion. But nevertheless, the notion that it did have that effect was really, was really startling. So what do we know about the people who are more likely or less likely as age goes, as age goes up to, do, to respond or not respond to a dose of, of aerobic, uh, an impulse of aerobic training? The, the bottom line is not everybody responds the same right. to training. But we could trace that back like to my swimming roots, right? We all didn't do the same workout every day. And if, if you got four or five guys running together, let's say you got five guys running together, four of them are probably running at the wrong pace, <laughs> right? So the point is though, exercise is good. And some people are bigger responders than others. I think the media has gotten a hold of this and like the non-responder people don't respond to exercise. I think the jury's out on that. I'm, I'm, I, I don't, I don't really live in that camp. From the data we've been, you, you, this is informed throughout my career. I think a lot of this comes down to what was the exercise dose? How yeah. well was it managed? What was the stimulus? And sometimes there's a low stimulus or people didn't show up to all their sessions and they get classified as a non-responder. And what variable are you looking at? There's a lot of factors that come into that. That said, it's clear there's a range of response. We're involved in, this is a huge undertaking right now by the National Institutes of Health. Our lab's involved with it. I don't know if you've heard of it, the Molecular Transducers of Physical Activity. It's a big, con- it's a big consortium. And one of the things we're, we're going to have around 2,000 people we're running through, we're collecting data right now. We started before the pandemic. We had to take a little time out. And this idea of exercise heterogeneity, yeah, big responders, low responders, and then tying that back into their physiological profile. And then we're doing a lot of biospecimen collection and tying that down into the molecular level to see if we can better understand this exercise dose response range amongst people across, across the age spectrum. So there is, there, there's definitely some response differences among people. And I, I'm comfortable with maybe high responder, lower, lower responder, but I'm not so comfortable with non-responder because I think when you get into the non-responder stuff into the weeds has been done, I think you can trace some of that back to the exercise dose that, that like, was administered. 
I think back to, I used to compete at cross-country skiing, strangely enough, been in high school and college. And uh, I think back to the people who did best. There were certainly some people who were freakish and could just like look at a pair of cross-country skis and suddenly got faster. But most people who got better were the people who took the most structured approach and were the most disciplined about it. I mean, that's a cliche and it's, obvi- and it's obvious, but and yet it was amazing to me how many people, when you look back, at, who were not responding to the various programs that we were competing in, were almost always people who regularly missed days or cut workouts short or you know, weren't going to the, the, to the recommended intensity. And that was among people who had specific objectives and were competing. As I work with people and see work, certainly co- colleagues of mine who are trying to build fitness, and they explain the program they're doing, it isn't really a program at all. It's very unstructured and ad hoc. I'm doing three months of, of zone two training or something. And, and there's, there's no intensity overlay. They don't know where they should be. And, and it's I'm not particularly surprising that they then character, characterize themselves as non-responders. Yeah. And then some of the stuff, when you get into the weeds, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus because these are how they're structured and it makes certain sense where they may be or home-based or community-based. So they're not supervised. Yeah. Right. So the intensity component isn't there. But when we do stuff in the lab that's supervised, which motor pack is, it's all one-on-one no, no, right, type exactly. training. And the thing is, it doesn't have to be crazy intense, right? There's a zone you got to hit for these adaptations. And just for your reader, it, independent of the exercise, because we do aerobic exercise and resistance exercise and whatnot. The magic spot for getting some of these adaptations about 70%, right? It triggers a lot, right? So if yeah. you go too soft, the, the amount of things that are actually being turned on for adaptations at a low rate, it still has some stuff going on. And if you go too hard, too often, right, there's a point of no return there. So there's a bit of a, <laughs> right. and depending on how often you're doing a, a frequency three or four days a week and you're putting in 45 minutes or something, it doesn't have to be a ton, but it has to be of reasonable quality and be consistent over time. Yeah, and it also varies, obviously, by sport. I mean, I see this a lot with people who put in too much intensity in running. They, they, they can't get away with it, be, but they came over from cycling where I could get away with being just under my lactate threshold for hours of, per week. Just try that with running and something will break and that kind of thing, right? Well, we got away with too hard a training and swimming for that reason. Our, we didn't break down like you do with running because we didn't have the joint loading, but the amount of volume that I did growing up, now, yeah. but, and I studied this for a living, so I can look back through a different lens. Like, I, don't think <laughs> I really needed to. I'm not saying that I would have been a higher caliber swimmer. I was reasonable. Yeah. But I think I could have swum as fast, more frequently, and been fresher out of the pool, right? I was essentially exhausted oh, sure. for a decade. <laughs> <laughs> you, hear that, you hear that story so often. Before, just as a question that I was thinking whenever you were going along talking about some of these lifelong exercisers who in particular who came from a competitive background were Olympic athletes and then comparing them to others. Do, historically, I don't know what the numbers, like 7% per decade or something like that in terms of the loss of VO2 max over time mm-hmm. with aging. And obviously, if you work backwards from someone who's in their 80s and has a 45 VO2 max... Would you guess that they were losing less per decade? If you do the mathematical compounding backwards, the numbers get really silly big. So I'm assuming that we have a better sense that it's probably preserving more VO2 max, not just as- We're projecting back on some of that stuff, right? So these longitudinal aspects are very insightful. This is the end of the free public preview of the Simpla Vita podcast. For the full podcast, including a transcript and show notes, you can upgrade at simplavita.com. 
practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. We will not respond to requests for medical advice.